I hope we hear those three flutes again often and soon. That was, that was great. Appreciate that. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us a privilege again of meeting here, opening your word, seeing what the Lord Jesus wrote to the church, to the people that he died for people that continue on to this day and include us. We thank you for that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're looking at Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. It's a message that I've referred to as the divine heart searcher. So if you'll turn with me there to Revelation chapter 2, we'll read together verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Let me stop there for just a minute. Those of you that have been with us in our studies of Revelation chapter 2 so far, the letters to three other churches, the description of Christ matches what is coming in the letter. Would you want to be the people to whom this is being written? Uh, It doesn't look like it's going to have a happy ending here. It looks like the Lord Jesus means business. The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Let's look and see what he has to say to this church at Thyatira. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That's a very, very quick commendation. And now here comes what we've referred to as the condemnation. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her. I will, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. City of Thyatira, a smaller less significant than the other cities in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And yet, it gets the longest letter. The Thyatirans get a very lengthy condemnation. Pergamum, back in verses 12 through 17, was the church that was beginning to compromise the truth. But Thyatira didn't only compromise truth. It allowed the deception to spread and lead church members to sin. 
what was in a developing stage had now formulated into a point right now where it was a very serious problem in Thyatira. So the words in this passage are sobering, they're attention-getting, they're a warning to keep sin out of our lives, but to keep sin out of the church. A lot of churches kind of wink at sin because they want to be very tolerant. They don't want anybody to get upset with what it is that they're doing there with regard to sin. There are a lot of churches who don't practice church discipline any longer where someone might be warned and then warned again, given severe several warnings, and then from there, if they choose to not repent, will actually be put out of the church. A lot of churches don't do that sort of thing anymore. But the words of the Lord Jesus here are very, very sobering. In fact, someone has written, the Lord Jesus Christ has called his church to be holy and to maintain purity by dealing with sin in its midst. In fact, the very first instructions he gave to the church was about confronting sin in its midst. So if you'll turn to Matthew 18 for just a moment, and we'll be reminded of that. Matthew chapter 18. We'll look at verses 15 through 17. This is the process for church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, please understand what that is saying. If somebody sins against you, you go to that individual. You don't come to me. You don't go to an elder. You don't talk about it to other people. We don't form a committee to deal with it. You go to that individual. This is talking about a sin issue. And it says, if someone sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And you know what else you've gained? Nobody else had to get involved. It was just between the two of you. That often takes a lot of courage. Sometimes that courage is is such that we don't muster that courage, but it's something we're called to do. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. And I would say I'd prefer you take one or two others who may already know what is going on so that it doesn't have to spread the circle of knowledge of somebody's sin any wider than it needs to be. So that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector Uh, In other words, that's an individual who is ripe for being excommunicated. People hate that word. I'm not real fond of that word myself, but that's something that the Scripture calls us to do. Someone has said the practice of church discipline that Christ instituted to maintain the holiness of the church actually has a twofold purpose. It's to call sinning believers back to righteous behavior, and it's to purge from the church those who stubbornly cling to their sin. In either case, the purity of the church is maintained. So please understand, when we're talking about church discipline, we're talking about trying to restore somebody. We're not trying to beat somebody down who has sinned and confessed that sin and is wanting to live for the Lord, but we're talking about the person who is unrepentant, the person who's been warned, the person who continues in that sin over and over and over again. James 3.17 talks about wisdom from above, and it says, it is first of all pure 
That's why we have to guard the purity of the church as far as this kind of sinning behavior. And that's what's going on in Thyatira. There is someone right in the middle who is teaching that which is not true, seducing people to do what is wrong, and is totally tolerated. And that's something that the Lord Jesus is definitely against. And so we have a destination in view here. The destination is Thyatira. It's about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. And on a map, we'll be able to see that. Be able to see uh, coming right up on the map. I hope you're able to see that map. There you go. And you can see there's a little review and preview that is here. We've been to Ephesus already. They forgot their first love. We've been to Smyrna, the persecuted church in Pergamum, who, who were tolerating, the people of Pergamum were tolerating things. Now Thyatira, a false teacher in their midst, and nobody wants to do anything about it. And you can see the location. You can see that we started out down here at Ephesus from Patmos, where this is being written. We go up to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and now we're coming southeast into Thyatira. So you can see uh, what's going on with regard to the destination. Something that's very interesting. The city of Thyatira was a gateway to Pergamum that we've already seen. It existed to delay attacks against Pergamum. Can you imagine that? They built the city and encouraged them to live there so that they would be the point of first attack. So Pergamum would not be. In other words, they're... They're there to slow the enemy down. There were no natural defenses. The Thyatira didn't slow the enemy down for long. In fact, it was repeatedly destroyed and rebuilt until it came under Roman control and was protected by the Roman peace. So if you're thinking about Thyatira, if you want to think about something that is um, a reminder for that, uh, think about the clown at a bullfight. That's Thyatira for Pergamum. Pergamum would be the bullfighter, and Thyatira would be the clown, trying to take the attention off the bull or from the bull off of the um, the rider who's just been thrown or just jumped off. So Thyatira existing simply as a safety measure for Pergamum. Thyatira was known as an industrial city. It prospered in something that comes to play here. It prospered in trade and commerce. And so it was well known for its trade and craft guilds. Now, if you picture that in your mind, those trade and craft guilds, very similar to our labor unions today. Um, Not much could be done if you weren't part of one of those craft guilds or trade guilds. There were potters and tanners, cobblers, weavers, bronze workers, bakers, and dyers, like Lydia, a, a dyer of purple. Lydia lived in Thyatira. It's very difficult to do business without belonging to a trade guild. And some of you who are in unions can understand that. You can't get certain jobs unless you join a union. Even when I was in seminary, I was a member of a union, and I had to be a member of a union to work for a UPS and unload trucks in the middle of the night. But you still had to be a member of the union and pay the union dues. Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to do that. So to hold any job or to run a business... It was necessary to be a member of a guild. Here's the problem, though. Each one of those guilds had a patron deity in whose honor feasts were held, complete with meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. So these trade guilds were involved in a whole lot more than simply business. 
they added to that all sorts of things that at that time were, were not good things. Now, you may be experiencing that same problem today. Each one of you, if you think to some groups that you belong to, not necessarily that you would want to belong to, but you're kind of forced into it in some cases, you may be involved with a group of people who become very important to you, like it or not. You may have been forced by circumstances to be a part of that group. You may or may not like the people in the group, but you do have to spend some time with them. Let me give you a few examples, because this is potentially those who have a great deal of influence over you. And they have a great deal of influence over you, whether you're a teen, whether you're older, whether you're an adult. We still have to be careful because of peer pressure. We understand that that's not just something for the young. You play on the same team with a particular group of people. I know that my son plays on a couple of different teams. One of my son, my son in New York, he plays for a team in New York, and then he comes down here and plays for a a team in this area because he does work in, in both of those areas. And he makes acquaintances, and there are a lot of things that go on when you play on the same team with someone. Maybe part of a work crew that every day you go out to the job together, maybe with two or three or a dozen people, but you're part of that work crew. Could be that you carpool together. Could be your officers together in a civic organization. Or you're assigned to be on a particular committee in the community. You're one of an elite task force that constantly is thrown together to solve company problems. Maybe you ride a bus together, the same bus with the same people in the same seats every day. Maybe you sing in a school chorus or a community chorus together with other people. Maybe you're on the drama team. Maybe you play in the band. Maybe you're drawn together in some social media web. Maybe you fight fires or fight crime with certain others that are in a group with you. Maybe you participate in a book club. But here's the point. They don't share your values. They don't share your beliefs. In fact, they don't understand where you're coming from. And it becomes very, very difficult to be a part of that group. How do you survive without compromising? That was the question in Thyatira. How do you survive in these craft guilds, in these union-like organizations that are there? How do you do that without compromising? And it wasn't easy for them, and they were losing the battle, it appears, and they were losing it very poorly. And it was compounded because those values and beliefs were now being undermined, not just in the crafts and the guilds, but now it was coming into the church. It was coming into the church And they weren't able to do anything about it. At least they weren't doing anything about it at this time. And the Lord Jesus is going to call them on that. And he's going to describe himself. This description of the Lord Jesus is described in three ways. First of all, he's described as the Son of God. He's the ultimate authority. If you're thinking of listening to anyone else, any part of any group, don't bother because there's an ultimate authority. That's the Son of God. Of God. It's the only time that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God in the book of the Revelation. The emphasis here is on his deity. It's not on his humility. He's not presenting himself to these people as the sympathetic high priest, but as the judge. We can see that Jesus is very serious about that, and we see that in the description already. The Son of God. But also, he's the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. 
Understand, he's trying to give a message just by that description. A flame of fire. Picture those eyes right now staring back at you. He's seeing motives as well as actions. He sees right into our hearts right now, every one of us. That's why this message is called the divine heart searcher. He's penetrating. You look at verse 23. We're not there yet, but... He says, I am he who searches mind and heart. He's the divine heart searcher, the mind searcher. And he means business. He's described as whose feet are like burnished bronze. That's a clear picture of judgment. Brass throughout the scriptures pictures judgment. Jesus is God himself, sees what's going on. He's the one that doesn't need witnesses He doesn't need lawyers to present a case. He judges as the one who sees everything. He will stamp out sin. He's like those people with the replays in baseball. It goes to them and the people in New York can make all these decisions. Well, the Lord Jesus already knows. He doesn't have to see any replays. He knows exactly what is going on. Again, quoting from one of the commentaries, This terrifying description, and it really could be a terrifying description, if you're holding on to sin and not doing anything to repent of that sin, he says this terrifying description of the Lord Jesus Christ must have created shock, consternation, and fear when this letter was read to the congregation at Thyatira. It came as a sobering realization to them, as it should do all sinning Christians, that Christ will judge continual, unrepentant sin. And remember, that's what we're talking about, continual, unrepentant sin. Jesus doesn't want anybody here who's confessed sin, repented of that sin, to still be there harboring that in your heart and mind and flagellating yourself and making yourself feel guilty and vile and dirty. That's what Jesus doesn't want. But if you're unrepentant in your sin, you can go ahead and feel that way if you want to. There's a commendation, as I referred to in verse 19, four or five different commendations that are going on there. The Thyatirans were commended for their works, and those works that were always improving, it says they were ever improving. They were commended for their love, like Ephesus was not. They were commended for their faith, for their service, for their patient endurance. Very interesting picture. The church at Thyatira is commended in many extremely important areas, but those areas are not going to be dwelled on. It's like bang, bang, bang. Dr. Isle tells staccato, right? This is bang, 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 and then we're gone. We're now moving immediately in verses 20 through, really 23, but 24 adds some things to it. We go right into the condemnation, and this is the bulk of this letter. Yet it says there's still a long and severely worded condemnation because verse 29 begins with the word but. Some of your translations will say nevertheless. Despite all the good things Jesus is saying, there's something that I have against you, and that's what we're going to take some time to look into. You're doing all these good things, but those good things are not going to be necessarily good things for very long. They're being surpassed by the bad things. It is vitally important that you deal with this area. Now, I don't particularly relish stressing negatives, but I have to here because that's what Jesus did. And so there are negatives here that we've got to stress. Jesus placing his emphasis 
on that. There's a continued toleration of the negative in that church, and it's going to obscure all the good things that have been singled out for commendation. You can picture this, a beautiful, modern, luxury liner. If you picture that in your mind, and then understand this is equipped with all the conveniences and all the luxuries to satisfy even the most pleasant conscious, pleasant conscious customers who are there on the ship or the passengers who are going to be there. And picture this, that there is someone who is coming before the maiden cruise, an inspector, and he wants to give his final report. He could spend all day praising the swimming pools and the spas and the game room and the niceties of the dining room, all the great food that they're going to have. He could spend a whole lot of time with that, but it becomes unnecessary because he glosses over them to get to the real import of his inspection. He says this ship will sink in a very short time. There is a built-in weakness. It is only a matter of time before this ship goes down. Does it matter how nice the ship is? Does it matter all the amenities that the people are going to have if there is a fatal flaw in the design of that ship and it's going to go down? Um, he doesn't care about all of those. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, you've got all these niceties, but the ship is sinking. The ship is going to go down if you don't deal with this problem. That's the impact of his message. No matter how many good things a church is doing, the seeds of that church's own destruction are waiting to be watered. In Thyatira, those seeds have already taken root. Instead of sweeping some seeds away, now a serious job of weeding has to be done. There's sin in the camp, and the sin has to be eradicated. Church discipline is in order, but it's been ignored. Now, I do want to mention something. A lot of churches ignore the whole idea of church discipline, and some churches go way overboard. They'll discipline anything. They'll discipline anything the pastor doesn't like about something that somebody is doing. They'll discipline not in the scriptural sense where all of those steps are taking taking place and people are being approached lovingly for unrepentant sin that continues, willful sin. It's not because you've done something that I don't like. It's because you've done something that God doesn't like and his word records it. Well, what has to be weeded out of Thyatira? Actually, it's not a what, it's a who that's going to have to be weeded out of Thyatira. It's a woman. It's a woman whose name is referred to as Jezebel. That may not be her real name. She's called that here since the original Jezebel of the Old Testament corrupted God's people with her morals and her theology, her doctrinal impurities. And this lady is cut from the same mold. It would be like calling someone Benedict Arnold today. His name may not be Benedict, but he's somebody who's a a traitor to a cause. So the leaders, and particularly the leader is addressed here in Thyatira, not only permitted her to teach in the church. According to the scripture, she should not have been teaching if there were men involved in this to begin with. They permitted her to be teaching, but they also looked the other way when she taught error. Her teaching led others in the church to immorality and idolatry. Obviously, that's wrong. And so it was wrong to ignore the impurity that needed to be dealt with as well. If we look at verses 20, 21, and 22, it appears as if this Jezebel lady was a player coach 
also. She wasn't just coaching people to do this, but she was involved. If you look at verse 20, it says, seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And sometimes people will say, well, this is just of a spiritual nature. Um, No, this is spiritual and physical that's going on. Verse 21 gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Um, So there it is again. She's involved. She's a player coach. She's getting other people involved, but she's involved herself. Verse 22, um, those people commit adultery with her. And so we see a, a problem that in a church, it must be flagrant. It must be very blatant. They're permitting this to go on, and nobody has the courage to deal with it. And that's what Jesus is writing this letter to them about. She had to be weeded out, and the damage she had done to the flowers at Thyatira had to be remedied. Verse 21 again tells us that she had been given time to repent, but she was unwilling. This is the real issue. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And she decided she wanted to continue doing what she was doing, and her unbelief persisted. The real issue was not her perversion, although that's an issue, but it was her unwillingness to repent. It was her unwillingness to do what was right because she enjoyed doing what she was doing. Punishment for her is indicated in verse 22. Sounds very severe. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. We know that in the scriptures, the the Lord Jesus talks a lot about discipline. I will throw her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So her followers are also going to be punished unless they repent. There are and always should be consequences for disobedience. Verse 23, the expression, I will strike her children down. That's a hard one. I believe that it refers to those who follow her, not to the products of her immorality or her biological children, but those who follow her. The punishment... As severe as it is, has a specific purpose. Notice this in verse 23, the end of the verse. Because it's saying here, it's not the end of the verse, but it says, And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. After Jesus gives his discipline because the people didn't give theirs, the Lord Jesus is doing that as a warning to the other churches as well. And so a specific purpose All the churches will know. Jesus still wants all the churches to know. He's watching. Remember again back in verse 1, those eyes like a flame of fire, the feet like burnished bronze, the one who says, I am he who searches mind and heart and that penetrating gaze, nothing escapes that. Jesus wanted it to be known to that church, and to this church and all the churches in between. Punishment should be a deterrent to others tempted to sin. Our safety, we're told here, is in repentance. The divine heart searcher knows when we've repented as well. He knows when things are right. Notice what it says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things, And beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search 
the heart. There's that divine heart searcher again. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. The divine heart searcher, the penetrating gaze, the one who knows everything that is going on. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And that person in this private room with this private computer doing things that ought not to be done and viewing things that ought not to be viewed, nothing in all creation is hidden from the sight of the Lord. That's what it says. That one who thinks nobody knows what's going on, nobody will ever find out. Somebody already knows. Somebody's already found out. When we look at verses 24 and 25 here before us, they address those in the church who've not tolerated Jezebel. A lot of the commentators think, commentators think that these are minority by now, that most of the people have fallen prey to this false teaching, into this immorality, into this sin. I can't prove that from the text But I can prove this from the text that those in the church who've not tolerated this Jezebel woman, who've not followed her sins, they're addressed. They were ones who are not deceived. They did not succumb to the peer pressure or the pressure brought to bear by Jezebel. And the commentary says this, it is not known how many in that congregation responded to Christ's warning. But tragically... The Thyatira church as a whole apparently did not heed it. History records that it fell prey to the Montanist heresy, a movement led by a false prophet who claimed continuing revelation from God apart from Scripture, and this church went out of existence by the end of the second century. They didn't listen to what Jesus warned. And they followed a Montanist heresy. Those who say, I've got revelation other than God's word. Listen to what I know. Listen to what God told me. It may not be in the scriptures. And that was, a, that was a problem in that church. There's an exhortation that goes on. The exhortation is very simply this. Hold fast to what you have. I won't place any other burdens on you. To you, the those in the church who are not falling victim to what's going on, hold fast. It comes from a Greek word, krateo, that indicates it would not be easy for them to do that. And that's one indication that maybe the remnant is a minority here. Hold fast to what you have. I'm not going to ask you to do anything else. You're doing a great job in some of these areas. There's this one area here that a lot of other people have fallen prey to. You hold fast. And the expectation of promise for that? Verses 26 through 28, to the one who conquers. Some of your translations will say to the one who overcomes. But to the conqueror, the genuine believer, the obedient believers, the promise is authority over the nations, which I believe means rule in the millennial kingdom. Verse 27 tells us who will really rule and the outcome of the wicked nations. Verse 27 And he, that's talking about the Lord Jesus, will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And he's giving us the ability to have authority. And then he goes on to say in verse 28, the promise of the morning star. 
And I again believe that that refers to the gift of himself. If we look at Revelation 22, 16, we'll see Jesus referred to there as the morning star once again. Several conclusions I'd like to draw. And those conclusions zero in on one aspect of how do we deal with peer pressure? How do we deal with the pressure of the group? And do you know what? It can even be the pressure of a Christian group. It isn't limited to those outside. It's the pressure that anybody brings to bear that is not helping you to become the Christian that God wants you to become. And so I would suggest this from Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. This is the way that Daniel dealt with peer pressure. He was being squeezed by the authorities of his time to conform to what they wanted him to. Daniel 1, 8. Great verse. If you don't have this marked or memorized or highlighted, Daniel 1, 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Now, you could stop there and you could apply anything to that. Resolve that I'm not going to defile myself with anything. But here, in this particular case, it was with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So the point is this. Make a firm commitment now before the crowd is there influencing you. Make your commitment from what God wants you to do before you get in the situation. Before the temptation is there, make some resolves that I'm not going to get involved with this. I'm not going to allow that. With God's help, I'm not going to do that. Make a firm commitment now before the crowd is there influencing you. Joshua says that in Joshua 24:15, When Joshua is talking to the people, they have just cleaned out the land. The Lord has provided them a great victory. The promised land is there for them. Joshua gives a little farewell speech, and he says to them, you know what, you've got a choice to make. There are gods on the other side of the river. If you want to worship them, that's your choice. There are gods back in Egypt that you worship. You can choose that if you want to. But I want to tell you this. Here we are in this land And here's what we're going to do. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He made that resolve. He made that commitment before anything else living in that land. Going further in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, it says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification or your holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality point here being realize God's strong statements realize God's strong statements and buy into them before the passion and the hormones are raging and I think you know what I mean by that you buy into a statement a strong statement that God makes and he tells us this is his will your sanctification is abstain from sexual immorality this lady was preaching go ahead and do it it's fine. Don't worry about it. Romans thirteen fourteen. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And again, point being, make no provision for the flesh. That means avoid setting the table and thinking you won't indulge. Avoid putting yourself right in a place where sin is all around and the temptation is going to be after you and you know places to stay away from, you know things to stay away from, and you still cozy up to them and you think, I can be strong this time. And you know God says, stay as far away from temptation as you can. And if you're presently involved in something, it doesn't have to be what is here in this passage, something you know to be wrong. 
the key word that jumps out of this passage is still the word repent. Let's do a 180. Stop doing it. Forsake that sin. Confess it to the Lord and repent of that. So let me encourage you, if you're dealing with any kind of pressure to do something that is wrong, any kind of a group that's doing that, make a firm commitment now before the crowd is influencing you. And realize God's strong statements. And realize to make those resolves before the passion and the hormones are raging. And don't make provision for the flesh. And if presently involved, repent and start over. That's the nice thing that the Lord gives us a chance to start over. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity that we've had to see something that apparently was very strongly on the mind of the Lord Jesus. Something that the Lord Jesus very much wanted to warn the people that he loves against. Not to allow anything or anybody, and particularly as it draws into the church, to lead anyone astray. Help us to be very aware, be on our guard, and courageous enough to do something about that which is improper in this your church. Help us to regard, first of all, the purity of the body. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.